0: Just keep writing because every script you're going to get better and so I think every script I've written I either realize it's not worth it quicker and quicker every time and like scrap it or I'm like Okay, no, I, I can see this is better. I can see this is better Just putting more guardrails on your writing is the best way to get good like better results
1: Tell me how is the process of writing your very first
0: feature? My very first feature, ooh, it was not very good at the end, but it was an important process. I, basically, I was working for Tom um, at Impact Theory, and kind of when I first came out to LA, I had this idea that, you know, it was all in the future, I was going to be a screenwriter in the future, it was fine, I was working, working, you know, at Impact Theory at the time, and that was, that was all I was doing, and that was fine. And then, slowly, as I started to actually, like, listen to more of what Tom was saying, I started to realize, wait a sec, I actually have to be not... I actually have to, have to be writing and, and doing what I want to do if I, you know, if I want to have a, you know, prayer in hell of breaking into this incredibly difficult industry. Mm-hmm. So I got started working on my first script, and I basically said, "I'm just going to do three pages a night," and that was it. Three was,
1: pages a night, mm-hmm. and that was it.
0: Yeah, that was going to do three pages a night. You know every... that one
1: page a night is already like super difficult.
0: I mean, I, I think it. I think it's a personal thing. Personally, I think it, like it all depends. I write very fast, and. Sometimes I wonder if I'm sacrificing quality doing that, but um, I—that's the only way I, I know how to write. I can't physically spend that much time on a page, so I just like when I write, I can sometimes write like six pages in an hour if I'm real, like if I'm really in the zone.
1: these mopes. And
0: then some days it's like I get I get to three, and it's like three hours of like crunching at a computer, like it's painful. Yeah, I usually I write pretty fast, um, and then a lot of it gets pared down later. A lot of it gets pared away later. And the first script that I wrote it was called Stopped. Um, It was kind of an interesting premise, I think, but a terrible execution, and it was basically uh, a world where uh, everything time stops, um, but some people Keep on living in a stopped world, and so it was kind of a post-apocalyptic film But all within one instant like the the space between an instant when like some subsect of the population call it 10,000 people on the entire planet were able to keep on living and it was I think that 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 is a very kind of that premise is is ripe for for doing something with it. But I think what I did with it was not good. What I did with it was just like uh, just a very run of the mill like YA movie that like nobody's making anymore, and was not very good. And I took who do you know who it was who said maybe it's Stephen King who said write your first script, then go out in the backyard, bury it, and never oh, look okay. at it again. And I just whoever said that. I love love that quote, and so I did that. I wrote it. I think my I think the whole first script was like two hundred pages that I wrote. Two hundred like, pages. Yeah, it was really not the right, like it was not reformatted correctly. It wasn't like It nothing was correct about it. But yeah, I haven't looked at that since. Yeah,
1: my first I one I think I could barely break sixty pages, and yeah. here you're like two hundred <laughs> pages. Well, no, there was another movie that because like the second feature I did. Because I've written
0: mostly uh, pilots and stuff, but the second feature I did uh, was very much that where I was like struggling, like I, I, you know, beat sheeted it out using the save the cat method, and I was, I was, like struggling to get it to 60 pages. I was like, I have to get, at least get it to an hour. Come on, like if it's not an hour, it's not a movie. Like, like it's not even a I got. to was like, at least get it to this, and I was really struggling. I think I got it like 58 pages, and I was like, fuck it, it's the, that's the most I can do. What about so, the yeah.
1: pilots then? Hmm. So did you start the first long form thing that you wrote? Was it the feature, or did you have pilots before the feature?
0: So it was the feature, and coming off the feature, I was very much like, "Well, what do I do now?" Because I worked. Because that took me like probably four or five months to write that. That's still pretty fast. Um, yeah, I think yes. But to me, since I hadn't really written that much, since like I wrote one pilot in college um, before that, and
1: did you study writing in college? Yes, I okay.
0: studied creative writing, um, kind of with a focus in screenwriting, and a little tiny college in Dublin called the American College of Dublin. And I was there for one year. Got an internship out here um, at Impact Theory for the summer. Um, came out for the summer. <clears throat> got hired at Impact Theory in the summer, and I kind of left college. So I'd written one pilot, <laughs> um, which was—it uh, was actually, you know, it was pretty good for the—it was for what it was for for a first pilot. It was pretty good. Um, but when I went back to writing, five months seemed like forever because I'd like done four or five months on this one feature and it it seemed like forever. So the next project I worked on was a pilot that I think it was definitely, it was a very clear improvement. Like if I can look, you know, they say you just keep writing because every script you're going to get better. And I have seen that to be the case. I think every script I've written for the most part, I either realize it's not worth it, quicker and quicker every time and like scrap it quicker and quicker, Um, or I'm like, okay, no, I I can see this is better, I can see this is better, just my physical, how I'm writing the prose in the action lines uh, is better, and kind of the overarching, kind of the, the theme, the thematic connections, the characters, the kind of Mr. X, everything is better. Um, from time to time the clearest example of that was when I went from my first feature into my first pilot my second pilot Was the clearest like jump to oh, okay. This is this is markedly better I can definitely tell that this is a better
1: pilot. So you and I met uh, through mutual friends. Mm-hmm. We go to a dinner party uh, They tell him oh, he's a he's a writer We start talking about mm-hmm. that you send me your script every time I meet a writer I'm like send me your stuff I'm, I'm always mm-hmm. trying to read and I'm always trying to find new writers. Yeah, so I got your pilot I read it the next day, freaking amazing. I couldn't mm-hmm. put it down. Like I sat down and like got it down uh, really quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, it felt very much like I could see it in my head, mm-hmm. like the world that you were creating, the characters, everything, it was very interesting. How many pilots did you write until you wrote that one that I read first? So
0: I think 2019 was my year where I just really churned out pilots. So I wrote, I think I that was like I finished the feature in that year. And I wrote, I think, three pilots that I was like, these are good. And that I think uh, After Death was the third pilot I did that year. But I also, during the first part of COVID, um, when I was living back in New Hampshire with my family, I basically went through and took that pilot and I took my first pilot. And I um, kind of, not I didn't overhaul them, but I, I like really took a solid look at them and like started to like seriously like, um, figure out what their problems were and uh, kind of rewrite them, do a lot of rewriting on them. So I did kind of have a, that was my first pilot and then there was kind of a After Death V2, this, which is what you read.
1: Gotcha. Um, yeah. So in your case, when you're going at, for because TV and features are two different monsters, mm-hmm. do you prefer one or the other?
0: I think I prefer TV both, uh, TV, almost always TV. I think I prefer TV because Uh, A, I just like the story elements better. I don't like having to wrap everything up perfectly in a ribbon by the end of like 90 pages. Um, That's something that really frustrates me when I'm writing uh, features. And I also prefer them because they're shorter. So you can get that, like I think part of writing, especially when you're first starting out, like I'm still first starting out and um, just writing a lot of stuff very quickly or not very quickly necessarily, but just getting a lot of different stuff done and experimenting because there's definitely something to be said for having an idea Executing on that idea and moving, moving on instead of like just taking one idea and just going over it again and again and again and again. And it's, it takes way longer to write a feature than it does to write a pilot. And for that reason, I prefer TV. Now I do think features have their place. I'm writing a feature right now because I want to go out and whether it's this year, I'm have some, the personal stuff i'm going through this year so i don't know if it's going to happen but this year and next year i want to direct this feature i prefer features for that reason because you can actually go out and execute on them much quicker with yourself you can't really go shoot a pilot i mean you could i have a friend who's actually trying to shoot an yeah. entire series himself but it's much much like it's like what's the point of shooting a pilot because it's, it's inherently a, a part of something but you can shoot a feature and if it ends up good you can submit it to festivals you can potentially get representation you can potentially get distribution for it mm-hmm. that's the benefit of features but in terms of like if i'm just going to write something i prefer tv, TV. every time
1: yeah. yeah i definitely don't recommend going out and doing a pilot for mm-hmm. tv on your own i did it with some friends mm-hmm. several years ago and it ended up being like a long short film mm-hmm. we didn't have the resources and then for tv is almost like you can't really put it anywhere
0: yeah like if you yeah, just have the pilot
1: yeah. what are you gonna you do? can't like you can't really
0: submit it to film festivals I mean there no. might be some that accept they have them, but...
1: created categories in film festivals for yeah. TV pilots which in my opinion mm-hmm. they're bogus
0: mm-hmm. like,
1: right may- maybe I'm wrong well but... it's like
0: what what are you gonna do with that it's like it, it, even if you win a film festival they're not gonna just take that pilot. And, and it, turn it- it's just a short film. It's just it might you might as well do a short film and then do that the same method there. So you have a short film, someone picks it up, and then they like option it into a series. Then you make a series of it. You're not it's it's the same process because you're just gonna basically end up taking that pilot and doing it over again. Whereas a feature, like no one's gonna be like that this is the pilot, we wanna get all the same people back and do the series now. Like a feature you know you can actually no one's going to ask you to redo your feature after a film festival they're just going to if they like it they're going to buy it and put it in theaters or put it on netflix or whatever and so i think yeah for for practicality's sake i think it's it's good to have a mix of both in my opinion but i know a lot of people disagree with that and a lot of people say yeah i did hear one story that was pretty cool um i forget again who it was but it was two writers and they actually went and they shot their pilot um and then had it put it on public access in LA public access. This was in the '90s. You couldn't really do it now. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't have the same benefit. But they put it. Was in... Was it
1: the people that were doing it about the prison?
0: You know who it was. It was the people who made you know that movie, Dark Waters. No. It's a movie. I think Mark Ruffalo's in it. Um, it's about um, the Teflon, you know. Teflon's the thing in, in like a, a, plastic, right? Yeah, it's like, but it's super deadly. And it was basically this this movie about undercover Teflon or something. It was the writers who made that. It was their first thing. They're kind of they broke in by this. So they did a pilot, they um, released it on public access, and then they dropped flyers all throughout Beverly Hills, um, saying just, to hold just like that yeah, somewhere. saying like. Go, you know, if you're an agent, if you're a manager, go. But this was before, go.
1: Internet, this it, was before the internet. This is before the internet. You could
0: never do that now. Yeah. Like it, and everyone's. That's like one of the negative things about the internet is everyone is doing
1: there stunts is like this. There is nothing negative about the internet, Sam. Fair enough. Just joking. <laughs> um, yeah. but now people, what people do now is they do web series, and I think mm-hmm. there's a there's a place for that. You need a lot of luck, I mm-hmm. think. I mean, you need to make something good, yeah. and then you need to get lucky and go viral. Mm-hmm. I feel like by the time you put all the energy and effort into writing a web series and shooting a web series mm-hmm. and doing post, yeah. you might as well use all of that time and energy to do a, a low budget feature. So I don't know. What do you think about that? You did a, a small web series. I did a
0: web series. It was super low budget. I had one, one or two crew members, um, and we shot it in my bedroom during COVID, and uh, it came out pretty well for for my level of because I'm a mostly a writer, so my my directing is you know leaves mm-hmm. a lot to be desired. I'm get everything I've done, I've gotten better, but mm-hmm. for me, it was it was it was uh, good for me. I, I think I see what you're saying about that. I do think if you want to in TV I think it, web series has its benefits because if you just I prefer my mind usually works in episodic stories so mm-hmm. then try if I have an episodic story and I try to then take that episodic story and shove it into a yeah, feature it's course. not going to work
1: yeah it's my producer yeah. head is just right. thinking if we're going to make something and it's going to take this long mm-hmm. to shoot to edit you might as well do that as a feature. It's easier to get distribution for a feature. But yeah, I can see what you're saying.
0: No, that's what I was saying earlier. Like, I definitely prefer writing features if you want to actually execute on them. But sometimes like with this project you're talking about, it was definitely like I had this idea of like, oh, asymptomatic, like someone goes through like severe depression, like from social isolation when they're, you know, when they have an asymptomatic case of COVID and they're stuck in their home, but everyone else is, is out and able to kind of open up in the world again. And they're already kind of, all of their uh, kind of energy is received from like social praise and you know, uh, social validation from everywhere. And so that makes it much more difficult. They, they turn inward and start to have they, uh, basically the negative voice of this person is, mm-hmm. is exemplified by used condom. Um, and that's kind of the, the idea of the story is a little tongue in cheek. But um, that was definitely an episodic story. I didn't really want, it wasn't enough for a feature, you know, it wasn't long enough for a feature, like totally at all five episodes total about 20 minutes um of that of that project so um for that project it was definitely web series but i I definitely agree from like a production standpoint it definitely makes more sense to have to be a a feature if you want to just get
1: something made gotcha so when you first came to LA, that was about 2019 Mm -hmm. and then COVID happened right away
0: no 20 so i came 2018 summer of 2018
1: so i was here for about a year and a half before, Before everything. everything shut down, yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So, tell me a little bit about your your experience coming to LA. I just had a call the other day with a young filmmaker, and he was trying to ask me questions about like, do I need to be in LA to mm-hmm. to make it? Like, people are telling me that it's a good idea. Uh, what's your take on that? Mm-hmm.
0: So it's um, it's being forced to change because of some personal things I've just sh- I shared with you, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'll share it on the podcast. I'm actually leaving LA for a while, for at least the end of 2022. Um I'm probably gonna be I'll be back and I have a, a film that's gonna have a premiere this summer, so I'll be back for that. Um, but I just want to do this is gonna be my year of just doing crazy shit because mm-hmm. you know, I'm 23 and I think before I you know sell a pilot or get on a, get on a staff uh, get staffed in a room, it's good to just like Live. do some be kid for a little while because I really wasn't a kid because I like, kind of I did college for one year, came here and I've been really hustling ever since that. So I kind of want to do one year. I'm just like doing crazy shit all around. I'm hoping that that is not. I kind of. Am, I have to believe that that is not going to uh, impede my ability to um, be a, to, to make it in this business. I don't want to live in LA forever. Um, I you were in love with the city, and that's yeah. amazing. I am not in love with the city. That's really
1: good light, yeah. good locations, yeah. and good people. <laughs>
0: It, it has all three of those things. Yes, I I grew up in cold. You grew up in a warm climate, so yeah. this is probably kind of more homey to you. Like yeah. I grew up in a cold place. So I was just in Utah, and that's where I'm going for the next couple months. Is Utah, and um, I grew up on the East Coast, not in Utah. But um, I uh, I love the cold, and it feels that feels homey to me. The cold, and then in the summer, the humidity and the feel, the smell of humidity, um, uh, the just super wet, clean beaches are like that's what feels like home to me. So. Um, I don't have this kind of super personal like love of Los Angeles, um, but I probably will end up here for a, a significant portion of my life. And for a long time, I did believe that you had to be in L.A. Um, if you wanted to make it in this business, like my, the very first episode of my podcast was called Why Every Screenwriter Has to Move to L.A. And I'm kind of forcing myself to come around on that issue because I realized I don't want to live here my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also want to be a screenwriter. So I'm going to have to figure out how to, you know, um, thread that needle and figure that one out. Yeah, sure. uh, I think definitely it's changing during COVID. And uh, over the last couple of years, it's definitely changed. I have friends who are in rooms that none of the, in writers' rooms, that none of the rooms want to go back. None of the rooms want to go back in person. People want to be remote forever. Um, even at Impact Theory, I know several of the employees at Impact Theory are now remote and they're living out of like Tennessee and uh, other places around the country. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping that stays for, for at least some some of it. I think it's definitely going to be harder if you're not in LA to like the soft connections. You know like like when we met you, when I met you and they gave you my script and that's how we, you know, found our our got started our relationship. Those things are going to be way harder to do outside of Los Angeles. There's no doubt about
1: that. I think definitely there is a change now that people are more open to the idea of working remote. I I don't know if it's going to change. I don't I don't know what's gonna happen mm-hmm. in the future. To me I still prefer like this. Yeah. And when you're breaking story and I mean to shoot you have to be in the room. Mm-hmm. And eventually if you're like if I'm shooting your pilot, yeah. And I'm there with the actors yeah. and I'm working on the scene and I need you. Yeah.
0: Well I'll be there when we're shooting the pilot. But yeah. that's that's the thing. Like when you're shooting something, that's different. Like I'll come mm-hmm. to LA and stay for a few months, you know. Mm-hmm. My my kind of goal, my all is my kind of dream um is that i would live somewhere abroad and come to la once every two months take all my meetings uh that need to be in person go you know go at all the parties and go you know, do back all this stuff, to your whole go back and yeah go back and, then, and then like ride. yeah and then if i have to come for a few months to shoot a film or to to be on set for a series um i'll come for that i'll, I'll be there for these couple months and then i'll go back and that's just my let's i grew up traveling around my family you know lived we weren't like nomadic, but we like every couple of years we'd spend a year abroad. My dad works online, so when he, uh, whenever he could take us out of school, put us on uh, homeschooling, and it was fine. That's just kind of how I was raised, and I, I'm realizing more
1: and more recently that I need that in my life. Like that's mm-hmm. something that that feeds me. But if you were 19 again and you mm-hmm. were thinking about going after a career in screenwriting, do you think people should move here or not? Yes. Yes. Now, if they have to move here, what are some pointers and like with a little bit of your story and how Mm -hmm. things worked out for you and how would you do it if
0: you had to do it again in Mm -hmm. 2022? If you're in college, um, it's great to try and get a summer internship or do a semester abroad in LA, anything like that. Uh, Those things are super helpful because it gets you here. It gets you a community of people you're already with. And those things, at least for me as someone who's a little more introverted are super important. So I know a lot of colleges have either like exchange programs with colleges in LA or some universities, Emerson College has a campus out here and I know other universities have campuses out in Los Angeles. So if you can, if you're lucky enough to get one of those, that's amazing. Um, But even if you don't, if if you're not able to get that, um, I think you should still come out. I think when you come out, it's, it's very important to get to build a community around you because there's no point being out here if you're not gonna have a community.
1: And how do you do that? Because I hear yeah. people say that all the time. Right.
0: How do you do that? Yeah, so I do have some tips. So the first thing, when I first moved here, I moved to this place called Upstart. And Upstart is this kind of extended stay youth hostel for creatives. So for actors, writers, musicians, producers, everyone who basically is new to LA or uh, you know, is, is struggling with money and needs a place to stay that's cheap, and with other creatives. And that place was amazing for development. I met my, my ex-boyfriend there, I met a ton of people I've continued to work on projects with, a ton of friends. So it's been great as a community of uh, collaborators and also as a community of um, just friends. In Because uh, it can be hard to move to a new city, especially a new city where it's so spread out and you need a car to go everywhere, so it's very isolating. Um, having that community is very important. So upstart uh, or another kind of community like that when you're living with people and if you're not gonna be living with people, I think, uh, or if you're not gonna be living in one of those kind of community stay uh, places and how those would work is you'd have basically eight bunks per bedroom. So it was really like a dorm. Eight? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It's not for eight everyone. eight people? Eight people, yeah, eight people. So four bunk beds, yeah.
1: Holy smokes. Yeah. It was crazy. It, it was.
0: It's not for everyone and it's not forever. You don't wanna be there forever. Um I was there for probably like four months and that was probably good. I was done by the end of that. Yeah. But I'd already one gotten month, the benefits guys. of it. Do one month. Because the other perks of it are there's always people leaving. There's always people moving out. Um and people move out together and so a lot of a lot of times you'll end up getting an apartment with people uh, also from from there. From there. Yeah. Gotcha. So those things are definitely you have to be okay to like, I'm gonna just like kinda living grunge a little bit for yeah, a little I think bit. If,
1: if you're 19 and you're yeah. coming to LA to mm-hmm. live the dream, yeah. I, I think that's a very good way yeah. to start. I'd, I had never heard about mm-hmm. that, but I yeah. think it's a really good idea.
0: And yeah, Upstart is specifically designed for like creatives, so it's a great place to network. But there's other ones, there's Eddie, E-D-D-Y, um, Common. Uh, there's other ones that aren't designed for creatives, but they'll give you the same sense of community. And if you're not going to do one of those, if that's not your style, totally get it. Go on like Facebook Marketplace, to, to find a room, so don't just get an apartment by yourself or with move out with someone and get an apartment with them unless they're like, or one of you is like a crazy social butterfly. Like getting an apartment with other people that um, like, as ma- like as many as you're comfortable with, like getting, like finding as many other people, preferably people who've been in LA for a while uh, can bring you to those communities is gonna be super helpful. And then even if you're in, don't do Postmates. Don't do Postmates, don't do Uber, do, like, go to Starbucks. Like if you, if you have to get like kind of a, a stopgap job and just get like a job in the retail business or something, go to Starbucks. Why Starbucks? It, it doesn't have to be Starbucks, but go to any of those like uh, places where you're with other people um, because everyone in LA is trying to make it in this business. It's it's bizarre. It's the one city in the world where you can walk down the street, any street in the city, and someone will be talking about camera angles yeah. or the Ari Alexa or something. It's it's bizarre. You can never find it anywhere else in the world, and it is constant here. So if you are one of the four baristas at Starbucks, at least two of the other ones are going to be like there screenwriters, are, actors, actors, musicians. Yeah. My I am. Uh, I, my roommate is actually a writer who's written on popular shows before, and she also works at Starbucks as well. So, like, people, like, really, you'll make connections with, like, not just people who are just starting out, but people who, like, have been in the business for a while and are taking a break from it or whatever. You can make a lot of connections like that. And that's why I say don't do Postmates, don't do, don't do anything else. That's I, a
1: really yeah. good idea.
0: And I worked, I also would say I worked um, at Valet, like, as Valet Parking for the Ellen Show for a while, when I first, or not when I first got here, but after I left Impact Theory. And that was amazing because not only did it build that community, but also like we parked the car, we were parking for the audience at the Ellen show. So we would park cars from like 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. Then we had nothing to do until about 4 p.m. And then we'd like get cars from 4 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. And then so there was all this time I could just write in the middle of the day, just like sit and write. And you have to be okay being outside in the heat and doing it, but I could just bring my laptop, and write for four solid hours, I could then park the cars, write for another hour, hour and a half. It was amazing. And so if you're gonna do, uh, so find a job with people, and find a job that is going to give you as much like downtime as possible. You also have to get a boss that's okay with that, and or a boss that's not present, but those kind of things
1: are really helpful. Yeah, thank you, Ellen, for allowing Sam to write <laughs> on the downtime. So once you have the script ready, what do you do? Because I think there's a lot of content out there about you know writing and do this and the scene and the characters mm-hmm. and we know that, but then what? That's a good question because that is a
0: question I'm still struggling with as well. Is what do you do? So I think when you're first starting out, you put it in a drawer. Well, I think you know. I, are you saying after you've gotten notes? Is this like first draft? You're saying the script is polished. You are ready. You could shoot this tomorrow, mm-hmm. in
1: your opinion? I think first draft. Finish okay. your first draft, mm-hmm. what do you do? Because I think before you come to LA, I would recommend you write mm-hmm. and you come here with something. Mm-hmm. Don't come here saying, I want to be a writer. Mm-hmm. Have a few scripts That's with a good you. point. Yeah, you want...
0: And the most important thing, write. Like, write every day. I don't write on the weekends, but every weekday, um, write. Or every weekend. It does. And if you can't do every day... You know, make a plan. Make sure you're writing progressive, like at uh, consistent increments you're producing pages. Because that is the number one thing that I've heard from um, like executives and producers and stuff is they'll, people will say, oh, I want to be a writer. And then someone will offer to read them and they'll be like, oh, I don't have anything. Or they'll have something yeah. and it's a terrible first draft of something they wrote four years ago in high school. And that you just, you need to be constantly writing because it's just like we were talking about at the beginning, you're iterating on your craft all the time. Yeah, so I always leave the draft for a few days. Like after I finish my first draft, I don't touch it for probably about a week. If I finish it on the Wednesday, I Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, don't touch it. Um, then I'll usually go back through and I'll just read through it and you know, grammar tweaks, little line changes, things like that. I'll make like little, little tweaks to it like that. And that usually takes two or three days for a, a pilot, maybe a week for a feature. And then at the end of that week, I will send it out to people. And I try not to s- just in it because I write, I, I, I produce drafts at a, a
1: reasonable pace. So probably like once every month or two. At an extremely fast pace. <laughs> may I add, I cannot keep up with Sam and his drafts. I'm always behind trying to read on the projects that we're working on. I do. I produce pages pretty quickly. And
0: um, so I... Try to kind of, um, especially if it's a sample. With something like you, there's no there's no real option. Like we're working on a project together, so I have to send it to you every time. But when I'm when I'm having like a new sample going, I'll I'll usually kind of alternate who I send it to. So I'll have like I have a bench of probably five or six people that I'll send drafts to, and I try to send it to like two or three of them per script, Mm -hmm. and make sure that I'm not just like every month being like here read this, here read this, here read this. Um, So I'll probably send it to two or three people and ask for notes. Now ideally you don't touch it when you're waiting for the notes to come back. I'm not amazing at that so sometimes I will go and like make tweaks to it um, while I'm waiting for for notes but eventually the notes come back and I usually try to correspond when the notes come back um, with doing one read through and not not um, like editing the script but doing a read through of it um, just to get my get like fresh eyes on it Correct. And so I have my notes then and like at least two other people's notes of what they want changed. Um, so then I have three sets of notes and then I kind of go through the notes and I address them. And that's kind of how I do my drafting process. Starts over again. Um, until basically, until no one has any notes or until I'm feeling like the notes I'm getting are like not helpful anymore. Mm-hmm. Usually I probably go around seven or eight drafts for a sample. Um, obviously like Johnny in my movie uh, is... 30 drafts deep or something like that but I probably like five, six, seven something like that is when I'm done and then after that uh, when you're first starting out I think you put it in a drawer you can get started on the next one um, when you're kind of if, if you think this is something you actually want to make I would send it to someone like you or Katrina or be like hey like," or I, I wouldn't just probably send it to you out of the blue but I'd be like hey is I have this idea uh, I have this script. Um, send a log line or a little bit of information about it,
1: and say, "What do you think about this?" So you mentioned uh, Johnny mm-hmm. Johnny Santana. He's another uh, filmmaker friend of ours. Mm-hmm. Tell me about this project and how has been the process? Because you mentioned thirty drafts. Yeah, in that's been a long that's process. A lot.
0: Yeah, and I'm actually doing uh, another season of my podcast um, that is kind of kind of air later in the year when when that film's coming out. Um, that's kind of a a blow by blow breakdown of how you kind of go from script to screen. And so it's gonna be each episode, um, it's gonna focus on a different aspect of the filmmaking process, uh, plug over. Now, um, (laughs) uh, so yeah, so that basically started when Johnny kind of asked me to read one of his scripts. And that was probably December 2019, I believe, that he said that. And I read it and I kind of gave him a lot of notes because it needed a lot of work done. And I kind of, I was like, hey, I'll do a pass for you if you want. Um, And I I did that because I liked the project and also because I like Johnny and I know Johnny makes stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's like another thing is like, surround yourself with people who actually make stuff because it's real. a lot of, there's a lot of talk. And if people who make stuff are like, and they say you're going to make it, they're going to make your thing, they're going to make your thing. And so I really, I'd been kind of looking for a way to get, you know, Get uh, working with Johnny for a while, and he sent me the script, and I was like, "It needs work," but I'm ha- I, I see the promise here. It's interesting. Um, it's kind of a cool story. I would be happy to, to do a pass. And he said, "Well, let's just write it together." And so we basically we did the whole like save the cat beat sheet at first, and put all our uh, cards up on the wall, um, moved things around. We basically ended up taking the script he'd written, and kind of using the the general overarching story of that, and then. Making that half the film, so that was one
1: half the film. Yeah,
0: so that that film was much more like it took place uh, over the course of one night. It was very much like a Have you seen the movie Good Time?
1: No.
0: So it's a it's a Safdie Brothers movie. It's it's a movie about basically a guy you follow him the entire night, and so that was kind of this kind of style. So you start at like six PM and like in the eight morning. AM or whatever. Yeah. yeah, that was the original idea. And we said, well, what if we take that and that's kind of flashbacks, and there's another story because there was some there was clear issues in that story of like the, the the bones of the story and where it was actually going and the thematic elements weren't just weren't there so we were like well let, what if we kind of show all this as like flashbacks from another story okay um, so once we had that idea we kind of broke down um, the save the cat and we basically said there's a past timeline present timeline we're going to do a, a beat sheet for each timeline and then put them together okay yeah so we did that and then we kind of just literally divvied up scenes. We were like, I like these 10 scenes. You like these 10 scenes.
1: You were right. Yeah, that.
0: you were right that. Perfect. And that that kind of corresponded with COVID. It was actually kind of perfect because it corresponded yeah. with COVID. When I went back to New Hampshire, we both kind of ended up over the course of like two weeks writing out our scenes. Um, and we put the draft together. And that was the only draft. And it was perfect. Uh, no, it was a monster. And it was horrible.
1: <laughs> um, it was a monster, <laughs> he said.
0: <laughs> um, but we then just started iterating. So each draft he would take, so I think maybe i I think he took the first draft. So he took that monster draft and kind of did it all in his voice. So he took everything and kind of, kind of molded it. So it felt like one cohesive thing. Then I came in and put my touch on it and we kind of just went back and forth. We would do a notes call each draft, um, uh, kind of explain like we'd talk over notes yeah. and what we wanted as we definitely got more uh, did it more we could kind of tell what the other person's ticks were it's really interesting you really get to know another person when you see how they write and yeah. kind of the wells they go back to and kind of how they handle certain situations and so it was easier now that we're like into 30 drafts it was way easier to just kind of be like oh this needs to be changed i'm just going to do it we don't even need to like have a conversation about this and we got much better about being like okay yeah, we're gonna we're gonna look at the I, I I made some changes we didn't talk about and that's fine.
1: In this case, because mm-hmm. Johnny being the director, mm-hmm. are you still like in charge of the script and he's following your lead, or since he's the director, he's in charge of the script and you're following his so
0: lead? So we were co-writers on this. So we, we looked at this as like this is a hundred percent equal. And then once the, the script is over, then it's all Johnny and I will be on set, I'll do whatever he needs me to do, I'll you know, do punch ups on the script, I'll give him ideas, all of that. But it's his, it's his project, you know, it's his movie. Um, but for writing a script, 100% equal. Um, so there was no, I think, you know, we didn't really have any situations where it was, um, where, where there was an impasse. You know, it was usually like one of us was, like if there was something where we disagreed, usually one of us was less passionate about it than the other, yeah. or we would just debate it for like 45 minutes, and then we'd figure it out. Yeah. And that, it worked really well. I think we got to like 14 drafts, I think, and we said, this is done, perfect. And then we kind of left it for like five months while we went to go get find funding. It was originally supposed to be on a $4 million like as a studio film. Surprisingly, it's hard to get funding for a $4 million movie, so, Surprisingly, fact. That's a fun, a fun surprising fact. fact
1: for everyone, it's difficult. Four million, uh, they just got four mil, <laughs> go and do it. Dude, so that I, didn't happen. <laughs> I worked on an action, like I worked yeah. on a Sony feature as an assistant location manager. Mm-hmm. And I think we only have like a million and a half. Yeah, like in the, yeah. in the last few years, because everyone is talking about yeah now you have cameras and the mm-hmm. internet and everything so the studio is like yeah you have cameras yeah. and iPhones <laughs> and the internet so like yeah. no more money so to no make more money.
0: movies plus it's like the the mon- the movies that actually make money at the theater especially sony doesn't have a streaming service so it's like the the movies that make money at the movie theaters are um <clears throat> like very expensive to make they're 100 200 million dollars they're like you know it's it's marvel James Bond and like what else is there? Nothing. Maybe on DC kind DC, of yeah. like there's those three, and that's really all that's making money at the theaters. So like they need to kind of siphon money away from their smaller projects, make those even smaller, just so they can throw like three hundred million dollar movies at the wall a year.
1: Yeah, because it's not only the budget to make the movie; they also have to market that movie yeah. to like millions of people. So yeah. it it gets really complicated. Mm-hmm. I love a low budget production. Mm-hmm. Like my my feature documentary was made by with very little money, but I still think there are some things that you need to have. And I'm talking from experience, like the sound of my film Mm -hmm. was garbage. right? Just because I did it like on my own. So Mm -hmm. I was like shooting and then I would set up a mic and then it, it wasn't good. And that's something that I think going on for whatever my next feature is, I want to have a little bit more money Uh, But it's always interesting to see how people find new ways to make Mm -hmm. cool stuff with very, very little money. And if you can at least finish the film Mm -hmm. and you have some – like it has to look a certain way Mm -hmm. or what you could do is if you don't have the money, find – an aesthetic for mm-hmm. your film that matches the type of budget that you have. Yeah. Like don't try to make a James Bond movie right. with $20,000. Yeah, yeah like, exactly. It's not I
0: think that is, that is such a good point. And I think that it's really easy to make movies look good right now. It's not really easy to make them sound good. And that is like the, it's still tough. You still really need a professional to do it. You can have good mics and you're still not going to get good sound if yeah. you don't have someone who knows what they're doing. That is, I think why I've interviewed a lot of people on my podcast and They've all said, basically, sound and food. Those are the two things you don't skimp on. Those are the two things you pay a lot of money for because that's going to keep your crew happy and that's going to make people happy when they watch it in the theater. I've been worried. I'm trying to do a movie for like $3,000, like super low budget. Like a feature? Um, Yeah, a feature. Yeah, it's not going to happen,
1: Sam. That's not
0: true, man. There are many films. Have you heard it? You know the the Bulletproof screenwriting podcast? Alex Ferrari? You know who he is? No. He makes like several $3,000 movies a year.
1: Are they good though?
0: I mean, I, I'm not saying this is going to win Oscars, but it's going to be a feature film that I can okay. say, you know, it's, it's, it's a credit, it is a learning experience,
1: it's going to be all those things. Okay. And how I'll I'm doing to, it... I'll have to see it. I think $3,000, even if you're shooting in a third world country where your money can go along more, mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't know how you do that, So to be honest. The way see. I'm trying to do it, and I don't know if this is going to work, it's all taking place in the trunk of a car. So how are you going to give me an hour and a half in a trunk of a car? Have you seen the movie Buried? With Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. yeah, Actually, really, really, mm-hmm. really good movie. Really
0: effective horror movie. that takes really place all movie. in it a trunk. It, a, it, it, a, it was, was not $3,000, I
1: tell That's you that. That's true,
0: but it was originally supposed to be $3,000. And about
1: <laughs> $1.5 <million laughs> of the $2 million budget that it had went from Ryan Reynolds' pockets. <laughs> well, <Whoa>, there, there <laughs> we start. Like, how do you get a good actor that is mm-hmm. going to... I think we have to backtrack. So what's yeah. the purpose of the movie? If the purpose of the movie is you just want to get something done, you're going to put it up on YouTube, there is no marketing behind it, then yes, I'll have to see the script, see how you're going to keep me interested for mm-hmm. like an hour and a half. That sounds, sounds really interesting. I'll give you the $3,000 for you to make the movie <laughs> if I can get an executive <laughs> producer credit and 50% of all the profit. All right, man. <laughs> there we go. We're checking right on it. Right there. But I, I think only for your sound mix you're mm-hmm. gonna spend like more than that. You
0: you could very well be right. You probably are very well right. Um, and that is, it's you know it's an experiment. It's an experiment. Um, and but the original, I will say, the original idea for *Buried* was that it was going to cost around three thousand dollars. And then some agent saw it, and it went to Ryan Reynolds. You know, it was originally supposed to be around yeah. three this, to five. The script to, you know, was whatever. really
1: the script on that movie is. Really it's pretty good. effective.
0: It's really like I'm fascinated by that. This is kind of a tangent. It's not as much about production. It's more about writing, because I think putting more guardrails on your writing is the best way to get good, like better results. There's something um, they were saying on some podcast the other day that screenwriting is essentially a funnel. So your, your opening scene, you have infinite possibilities. After your opening scene, you have slightly less possibilities. After your next scene, you have slightly less, you have slightly less, you have slightly less. And it can be really overwhelming for people with that opening scene that they, they wanna do James Bond, they wanna do Marvel, they wanna do one of these things. And starting with guardrails, so starting with a smaller funnel, I think is a really effective way to give you strong, uh, a strong result. You know, because I'm, I found that when I'm working on this project, I really have to think about ways to keep the viewer entertained. I really have to think about something because something has to happen basically every... Because basically there's like five or six actual slug lines in this script. It's basically she passes out, wakes back up, you know, or like, you know, or we we hard cut to a few minutes later because it's not continuous. But you have to still split these films up into scenes because you can't just have it be one continuous thing. So you have to find things that are like, okay, for the next five minutes, she's talking to someone on the phone. Then after that, she's trying to, um, fix her hurt leg. Then after that, she, the person who's in the front, in the front seat of the car is, is alive and we thought they were dead. And so she's calling to them through the, 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 um, the partition. And so you have to kind of figure out these ways to, to divvy, it into scenes. And I, to me, it's, it's led to like creativity in a way I, I haven't experienced in the past because I have, I'm forced to find a way to be creative in this tight space, the size of this counter.
1: Funny enough, one of my first short films that I did in film school, it was one of those weekend uh, exercises. Mm-hmm. It was a dude trapped in the trunk of a yeah. little car. Uh, and I found this cool location. It was like like a big junkyard. Uh-huh. And then I had my little crane movement yeah. and all that. The short was pretty shitty. Like, I don't want to show it to anyone. <laughs> but I totally agree with you. When you have these limitations, mm-hmm. then you have to come up yeah. with something good. Like, there's yeah. no, no other way. So I'm interested to see what you do with that mm-hmm. one. Again, I'll find the money. <laughs> I'll find the cameras and the actors, and maybe I can help you shoot it. I still believe that the job of filmmakers is not to keep finding ways to make cheaper movies. Mm-hmm. It's to find the way to raise the funds to make mm-hmm big movies
0: yes i I totally agree you you said something when you came on um screenwriter survival guide that uh, that really stuck with me which is that like you don't want to make small movies forever you don't want to make the super low budget movies forever um some people are cool with that and that's awesome i think i think if that's what someone wants to do and they just want to make movies for like a thousand bucks because they can do whatever they want they can get as weird as they want shane caruth Who's not the best role model anymore? But like he could do whatever the hell he wanted with his what movies. What movies did he make? Uh, Primer and Upstream Color. Those were his two movies.
1: Primer is the one where they travel. It's a time the travel movie? movie. And then yeah, Upstream and Color is. In the garage is, and all that.
0: Yes, it's in like a storage facility. Is storage? Yeah. yeah, that's the you're thinking of the right movie. Yeah. Um, but uh, you can do any, like those were like $3,000, two, $3,000, those movies. Um, the first one, uh, the first one was two to $3,000. Maybe that's
1: what they spent, but when you th- you're not counting for the writer's time, the director's time, the editor's time, like when you put all of that into perspective, I mean, it's, it's a mute mm-hmm. point to try to talk about who made the cheaper, the cheapest movie or whatever. Because mm-hmm. uh, then you have movies primer, even if they made it for 3,000, to get distribution, to go to festivals, and then to put it on streaming yeah, services, right. yeah. then like your bill runs up, and yeah. you end up spending like yeah. tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. So I, I agree with you. Like we need to find ways to be creative and mm-hmm. make these movies as cheap as possible, so you don't stay in the waiting zone forever. Yeah, because like I do think Shane Carruth
0: is a good example here. Like he made these movies for, even if it was $100,000, still no money. That's nothing yeah. for a movie. Um, and then he made Upstream Color for Slightly More. And then, you know, if he had been a good person and not, you know, everything that he was, he had a movie that was what starring... What
1: happened
0: to this person? I'm not 100% sure what it was, but it was something in the Me Too, Time's Up kind gotcha. of thing. He turned out to be a little bit of a sleazebag. Um But he had a film that he was doing with, like, Asa Butterfield and it was someone crazy, like big it was some of was millions of dollars studio budget so like that's like what you're saying where you go you you have to make like i could not go raise funds for after death right now we tried
1: yeah (laughs) and And we're gonna keep driving yeah
0: yeah yeah yeah. but i think that's why we're doing the podcast because it's like you have to have something that shows oh you can do this you're good at this and then you get something slightly bigger and then you i think there is a ladder and as much as like yes it would be great if we could jump to the top rung I don't think that's an effective way of like, I think it's much more effective to look at like, okay, what can I do now? What small thing yeah. can I start doing while also keeping the big projects in the background and exactly. the big yeah. projects. Yeah. That's
1: my strategy because mm-hmm. I have seen big projects. I have, I have been a, a location scout and location uh, manager on big studio projects. Mm-hmm. And I have seen some of those people directing and producing and writing mm-hmm. where they came in and that's their second project. Yeah. And, they went and wrote something, did something like indie, and it was good. It showed voice, and they got lucky, and then they get a deal, and now they're directing like the next Amazon Prime like massive I mean, yeah. project. Look at look at Eternals, like Chloe Zhao, Chloe Zhao, mm-hmm. who made Nomadland.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Nomadland. But she a great got movie.
1: nominations and and all that. Yeah, with Nomadland. Yeah,
0: she was a, it was a great, but it was indie, super low budget. I Meaning you know, Francis McDormand, so it was a couple million dollars. But like. Um, she made she was really good at that and then they jumped her up too high too yeah. quickly. Like they I not not to say that she couldn't have made a great Eternals film in ten years, but not today. And I think yeah. that's like a perfect example of what you're saying. That's kind of the highest profile example right now, but that happens I think all the time. Whereas Yeah. It's just like this you want new, new, exciting voices. But then mm-hmm. the flip side of that is you end up with something like I May Destroy You, who is also Michaela Cole is is relatively new and this I believe was her first show. Actually, I don't know if that's true. Don't hold me to that. Yeah, I haven't um, seen that show yet. But she's still rel- relatively a new voice and she's still, like, you You have these wild success stories and you have these wild failures. Yeah. Um, now, I May Destroy You isn't a Marvel show, also. It's still a pretty small, tight, personal story as well. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I think that double strategy of doing the low budget while also working on the big things, that's the approach that I'm I'm mm-hmm. taking. I'm working at impact theory because I believe where the studio is mm-hmm. going and I'm trying to do my best to take the projects that they have there in development mm-hmm. and figure out how can I make this my own and then get it made and mm-hmm. push from within a new studio. Even that studio is trying to pitch to big studios and we have yeah projects and we're trying to get with like the major major studios and i'm also staying up at night trying to figure out okay but i want to make my own movie that i want to make Mm -hmm. and i'm working with you trying to Mm -hmm. push after death which is a big big uh, Mm sci-fi high budget tv show that'd be expensive yeah but then we're also talking about hey, Sam, how can we write something that I can shoot for like 50K and do it with a couple actor friends and Mm -hmm. just shoot it? Because I have that desire, you know, to like go and grab my camera and like go Mm -hmm. and shoot something. So I still don't know. Yeah. I still don't know how it's going to work out. And lately I'm just accepting the idea that you're not supposed to know how things are going to work out. Yeah, that, I, I'm in the same
0: boat with you there because I especially with me making the decision to take a break from LA and I it's really easy for me to go down this hole of like, oh my God, I leave. I never, yeah. I lose all my now, connections. I never blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It all, it all tell, fails.
1: Tell yeah. me about that because like you're mm. one of the people that I admire the most. You're always working. I'm surprised by the amount of like pages that you're always mm. cranking out and I think you should not leave from the career side of yeah. things but also we all have personal things that mm-hmm. that are also going along with our career and maybe that's something we forget sometimes we don't know what that person that got the big show you don't know what their life has been in the last five years and even people that you see that are super successful they have their struggles Mm -hmm. it's not like they just got lucky and they're talented out of this world they are aliens they're like gods Mm -hmm. it's like no they're struggling with things and they're finding ways to keep creating yeah so tell me about that and and your yeah. Only chair whatever you want to share, but tell no, me on that decision I'm, of I'm leaving. I'm totally happy. I,
0: I, so I've always said since I first started this that I would only, if I if it came down to like happiness or my career, happiness all the way. I'll you know I'll fucking flip burgers if I have to. If I, if it's gonna make me happy and like doing this isn't gonna make me happy, uh, whatever. Like I just don't think it makes sense. Like I I don't think in my like logically I don't think it makes sense to like try to hustle and be a writer if it's not making you happy. Yeah. And I have not been living that. I have been saying it, but I've not been living it. And I think I'm so close to this right now. I still believe that I I get so much joy from writing and from talking about writing and from getting excited about sets. And, and like this makes me really excited right now, like sitting here and talking about projects and like talking, oh, we're developing this project. Like, oh, we, we might be making this feature. Like all of these things, they get me really excited. But I, I, have, I also, but I've also been really like borderline depressed the last like six months I'd say, and I think that has a lot more to do with just like loneliness of just like I'm someone who like it's I need to I need to be surrounded by people if I'm gonna um, if I'm gonna be socially active like it's really easy for me to sit on my couch on a Saturday night and watch TV and get DoorDash you know um, if because I I don't I'm not super comfortable with like the, oh, I'm going to reach out to someone here and reach out to this person, like, um, let's hang out. Um, So it's much easier for me to be social consistently if I'm surrounded by people. That's been really hard during COVID. And so I think that's what's going on. I think what's going on is I've just been lonely. And that's been making it, like that's been sapping all the joy out of my writing. It's been sapping all the joy out of my life. And going back for Christmas and then to Utah in the the, uh, early January this year, I kind of, I felt like alive in a way I hadn't felt in at least like six months. And on and off throughout COVID, basically whenever I was in LA, I was feeling like shit. And I think what I like need to do is I need to test that hypothesis and be like, okay, if I take this year and I just like, do crazy shit. And I'm still probably going to write, I, I may take a few months off of writing and just like see if that, what that does and then slowly introduce it back in. But I'm still hoping on doing my film this year. I'm still hoping on, you know, working on getting those after death podcasts. I, I might be doing something with impact theory. I'm not sure that's all up in the air right now, but I'm still like still thinking about those projects, but I think I need to kind of Test whether or not like being somewhere else, being surrounded by more people and being like more social is going to make me happier or not. And the best way to do that, I think, is to leave my status quo.
1: It totally makes sense. Yeah, Uh, It sounds like it's not a matter of the city. It's just a matter of like you and like Mm -hmm. your personal circumstances. I think it's a great idea to go now and try Mm -hmm. things, try living in different places and all that. And hopefully you're going to find that fun and like that excitement mm-hmm. again, yeah. and probably putting down your writing for like a few months mm-hmm. and then coming back to it is yeah. going to help you come up with new ideas. Yeah, I have a, a secret intention to keep you here and not let you go yeah. anywhere.
0: <laughs> you said you're going to lock me in the not lock me in your apartment, not let me go home. <laughs> yeah, uh,
1: I think what's going to happen is that you're going to go wherever you're going, mm-hmm. and then you're going to see a, new ideas, and then you're going to start. All of the sudden, one day you're going to wake up with, like, I got this idea because of something that happened yesterday. And now Mm -hmm. you're going to start writing a new thing, uh, which is always wonderful. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, like, I I agree with you. I have had the same feelings of feeling Mm -hmm. lonely and all that in the last uh, year it comes and goes Mm -hmm. and depending on what you're doing and sometimes I'm on a Saturday night and Mm -hmm. I'm here just editing or I sit down and Mm -hmm. watch a movie and I'm a super extroverted extroverted person but Mm -hmm. we all have those uh, moments, you know? And it's really interesting that you're uh, thinking about happiness and your career and like you have to put your Mm -hmm. happiness first. For me, if I wasn't pursuing filmmaking and making movies and all that, I wouldn't be happy. So if I... Gave it up at some point it would probably be because of some like big yeah. personal reasons And I still think I would find a way to get back to it mm-hmm. And I think because I have read what you have written mm-hmm. I think you have that in yeah. you because you cannot create Amazing things like what you write without having that innate desire to like sit down and in your imagination is something yeah. You cannot shut off. So I really I
0: think you're right I think I'll get to like week two and be like, "What am I doing with my free time?" Because I'm gonna be like working. I'm work. I'm literally going to like base level work because I'm basically going. I'm going to a ski resort in Utah to work as a lift operator, um, get a free season pass, and basically free housing. And that's basically what I'm trying to do for the rest of this winter. Um, and so I think I'll probably get to week two and be like, "Oh my god, I need to I need to write again." No, maybe you think- <laughs> you write
1: a ski resort drama. Yeah. Uh- maybe.
0: Yeah. My parents were pitching me when I told them this idea. They were pitching me like, oh, like a sitcom about lift operators. <laughs> so, like the, your parents are <laughs> pitching you they're ideas? Pitching me. They're like, you could write a sick." They do that all the time. They're always like, here's your idea. I'm like, ideas are not a problem. It's not that I don't have ideas,
1: that's <laughs> not the problem. But that is a good idea. Yeah, yeah. that's actually a good idea. Yeah. It's going to be hard to, you can only shoot in the winter.
0: It is, yes, that is true. You have to shoot in the winter. It's hard to do on a soundstage, a lot of out, exteriors. And they don't really make those shows that as much, like the sit,
1: like straight sitcoms. They don't really make those as much, so who knows? But yeah. you know, maybe we need a, a new sitcom. <laughs> so Sam, if you could do anything, budget was not an issue, hmm. and like you could write like your masterpiece, hmm. what would you make? Hmm. That is a
0: really good question. Um, I'm re- now. I know you didn't personally respond to this script, but. I am really excited about this one project I have, Indivisible. And it's basically, um, it's very roughly inspired by a podcast called um, It Could Happen Here, um, basically about the potential for an upcoming American Civil War, uh, as kind of we get more polarized and and split apart. And we, uh, I wrote a script that's, it's, um, you know, and roughly inspired, but not in the legal sense. it's called uh, Indivisible, and it's basically about a group of people in Phoenix, Arizona, that are trying to decide whether or not to leave as uh, the kind of militias crop up and kind of the social order breaks down. And I'm very excited about that project. Um, that if I got 50 million dollars today, I'd probably be like, let's give, a, let's get that, let's get that project
1: on. No, there. it's gonna be after death first.
0: Yeah, right. After death, of course. Yes. I, I assumed after death was a too bad of an answer. I couldn't give after death.
1: Yeah, no, you have to say the first whatever you the want docket. to
0: make. Of course, yeah. after death is the first thing on the docket.
1: So why are you drawn to, because these two shows are <laughs> post-apocalyptic, everything went to shit. What draws you to that type of story? I don't know. I don't know what draws me to that
0: kind of story. That's like two, that's, I need more years of therapy before I can do that. I, uh, um, I, right now I see it in the world, which is depressing to say, and it's sad. I really, really hope I'm wrong, but I kind of see it happening yeah. where.
1: It's interesting. Cause like my perspective is completely different.
0: I know you, I, I wish I had, I wish my mind worked more like yours, yeah. but I always, I think there's two types of people, right? And I think there's a type of person that like they see primarily the positive. When they, when they see a situation, there's two paths. There's a way you can think of the negative, and there's a way to think of the positive. When they're faced with a new scenario, they think of the positive path. Um, and then there's another type of person that thinks of the negative path. I think I'm the person that thinks of the negative path, and you're the type of person that thinks of the positive path. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really trying to think more of the positive path, because I think it's better to live there, and that's like part of the reason that led me to, to make this decision to go to Utah for a few months, of so just being mm. like, it's not, it's not gonna kill me. You know, It's not yeah. gonna I'm not gonna die. I'm not gonna be 50 all of a sudden, you know? Um, but uh, but I think that for my writing, I think that is where I tend to go. Um, and when I've tried to write things that are lighter and more like happy and, and fun and like look at all the amazing things that could happen, it, they don't turn out as well. There's just something about like um, this sense of like, so with After Death, for instance, my, my dad fully believes we're gonna live to 250. That's yeah. his thing.
1: Yeah, and, and after, after Death is a show where yeah. everyone Looks young, and they have been taking this mm-hmm. treatment that keeps them young, and mm-hmm. they live yeah. hundreds and hundreds and yeah. hundreds of years. And mm-hmm. this is the world overpopulated. So it sounds really cool. Yeah. And I can totally see what you're saying. Yeah. With that premise, I could say, oh, it's a world that is amazing. Yeah. Everyone is beautiful and young yeah. and strong and it's super cool. And now mm-hmm. we're going to do amazing things. Yeah. Or you could do Sam's version, which is <laughs> dark. As shit. It's dark. The world is overpopulated yeah. and people are depressed because they get to live young and happy. Yeah. No, they get to live young and beautiful forever. But now they're depressed. It Yes. So after that... I
0: think it probably did start as like dour and because it's like the negative path, but I do think I've kind of come around to it as like, just that mortality might be good. Like it might be a good natural thing that we should do. So this kind of weird thing that's happened with COVID where kind of days turn to weeks and weeks turn to months and months turn to years. And it's this very weird kind of this flow. That's kind of, I've really started to think of after death like that. Like, what if that just happens for 300 years? Like that seems really depressing. Like, and at certain time, Especially since I think this whole movement into space and this kind of like Elon Musk space future is way further away than we think. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if you look 2050, he wants to launch the rocket or whatever, 2030 or whatever. That's what, 10 and, people, and, and then like, they launch the colony, and 10, 20, 50, if we get a million people up there, that's still like a fraction of the world's population, yeah. not
1: even a fraction. Um, yeah. And for me, all of that is super interesting. Mm-hmm. I want them to go and do all yeah. of that and build everything. Mm-hmm. I don't think I want to go. Yeah. Uh, and also living over there, it's not going to be that cool. It's just, yeah. you're going to be trapped in the, yeah. like this, whatever thing where you cannot go outside and yeah. like, go to the beach or something. It's going to be, so, yeah,
0: it's going to be difficult. It's gonna it'd be cool to visit for a weekend <laughs> if you could, if you had like yeah. hyper, hyper speed. Um, I definitely think space tourism is cool. Like I was going to space would be slick, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, no, I wouldn't want space. That's depressing. Yeah. Um, but I think like just spending like at a certain time. So there's. It's an Isaac Asimov, I think it's an Isaac Asimov story that I heard when I was a kid. That is basically this guy dies, and he's met with, he meets God. And God tells him, uh, okay, you can go anywhere in the universe. Uh, as much as you want, do whatever you want, enjoy. And so this, this guy, he goes everywhere. And after 20,000 years, he starts to feel a little bored. He goes back to God, he says, oh, I'm feeling a little bored. God's like, just go, just go experience more. Just You need to experience more. So he goes, and he goes and experiences tons more. And he goes back to God a hundred thousand years later. He's like, please, I need, can you, can you let me die? Um, because I don't, I'm, I'm not feeling anything. I, there's nothing new to experience. And then God says, no, I'm sorry. I can't. So the guy goes back out another hundred thousand years pass, And the guy is like, like can't stand it anymore. And the man can't stand anymore. He goes like, he's like, okay, God, uh, if you can't kill me and I, I can't leave this place, just send me to hell. And God says, well, where do you think you are? And I think that idea, like the idea of that immortality is essentially hell because it's forcing you, there's at a certain time you exhaust all, um, all possibility for like new experience and for, for new, um, like, uh, synapses to fire in your brain. And there's this thing, I think Peter Diamandis said it that like by age 30, most people, not everyone, but most people they're Like 90% of their brain's activity is repetitive, so it's 90% of their brain's activity has been is repeated, and that is scary. And that's by age 30. So imagine by age 300, 10,000. Like, so why do we still have this desire to like not die? I my personal theory is that for tens of thousands of years humanity had God, and in recent years we've stopped believing in God. As obviously many people still do. But as a society, as our society has grown much more atheist and agnostic, and that if you look at the people who believe they're going to live forever, there's usually not a lot of like overlap between them and like religious people, and that if you, that human beings effectively cannot cope with our own mortality. If we try to actually face our mortality, we get depressed, and depression is the kind of how I handle because essentially nothing matters. There is nothing yeah. but a void. We die. We die, and then we're dead. And so my, my personal theory is that the, phase, the craze of immortality is because so many people are facing the idea that when you die, you become dust. You simply cease to exist. The synapses in your brain cease firing, you are gone. Done. And so my belief, and I don't know if this is true, is that a lot of people believe are turning to immortality as kind of a uh, salve for that? It's a new god that they're that they're worshiping now. This like like I'm a not new gonna die.
1: like a new big goal to keep yes. you excited about. Yeah, it's like living? well, I
0: don't need to worry about death because I'm gonna live forever. It's kind of like I don't need to worry about death because I'll see all my loved ones again and be in heaven.
1: But that's religion too. It gives you yeah. That. No,
0: that's what I'm saying. That's like the old way. It's like I don't need to worry about death because I'll go to heaven and it's see my family. But now, now you it's realize like, I don't need to. Die. I don't need to worry about death because it doesn't exist because. Because it, all of my family will be alive forever.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't think we're gonna to get to that that quickly. I don't
0: think we, yeah, we're generations out from that. If it is, yeah, true. we're many,
1: many, many generations after that. But I did heard to someone that you and I both know mm-hmm. who had a conversation with a very high profile scientist, and mm-hmm. they're really close to discovering some things that hmm. it sounded very much like after death to huh. be honest. Wow. So I needed to tell you about that. I'll tell you more later. Yeah. Uh, That's hmm. fascinating. And I'm not saying I'd be strong enough not to take the pill.
0: And I, I am also not. I don't think 90 is the correct age for humans to die at either. I think if we can keep our bodies like virile and, and you know, young-ish and uh, be able to still do the things we want to do, I don't want to die when I'm 90. I don't yeah. want to die when I'm 100. I want to die it, when I'm 300. You know? I just yeah. think, that, I think that immortality is not a good goal i think it's like eventually we'll end up like that man in hell yeah. and there's, well yeah. for
1: us now 90 sounds amazing mm-hmm. and it is almost like we all expect to live up to 90 it's like the standard mm-hmm. like if you die at 60 people are like oh he died so yeah. young it's, yeah hundreds of years ago mm-hmm. making it to 30 mm-hmm. yeah was awesome mm-hmm. Making it to 60 was unheard of. Yeah. It was like for kings yeah. and like very well protected people. You're right. And
0: there is, there is an idea, like, this is kind of what my, my dad believes is that like there is no such thing as like an age you're supposed to die. It's just like as we cure more diseases, your body stops dying. And that's effectively what's causing death. And death is an illness. Is kind of how he believes. And maybe that's true. And maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I hope we
1: can all live for the 10,000 or 20,000. Yeah, I think this probably to... too much. I think we're, at least in our lifetime, mm-hmm. I think we're going to see a significant increase where mm-hmm. maybe living to 120 yeah. is
0: like. I would not be at all surprised if I lived to be 150. You know, like I think when you start to get to 200, 300, I'm like, hmm. Now I think there is the 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 thing that my dad always says to this is like the the progression like when you get to 150, the science will have progressed to that point to let you live to 200, and so even like if when you get to 150 or even if when you get to 100, the technology doesn't exist to let you live past 120, it will it will exist by the time you hit 120, and then it's a question of like lossless like will will it allow you to still live like you're 50 when you're 120 when you're 160. And that's, that's the question. And it's, it's, it's a lot of questions we don't yeah. have answers to. I think
1: before we get to that advance in medical sciences, mm-hmm. we're going to get to the point where you could almost download your consciousness or into yeah, a into, mix yeah. of your personality into an avatar, like an AI that will take everything that you give it, and then it would almost clone a matrix code of you, and then it will keep learning. But even if you have that, it would only be useful if your loved ones who are still alive want to pay for that so they can still, like, FaceTime with you and, like, talk to a version of you that is digital. And then maybe if we get enough of those and then if you make it truly AI where it can interact and it, it can keep learning and keep interacting with other people, I think a version of that we might be able to see in the future. What's fascinating is there already is this chat app, this chat app you can
0: download, and it is, I don't remember what it's called, but there is already a chat app you can download, and you can give them someone's social media handle, someone who's dead, and if they're active enough on social media, it can comb through all of their their posts and figure out how they talk and it's not perfect obviously it's not a you know perfect illusion but you can actually text with your dead loved ones wow. um and you can you give it videos you give it any information you have on the person and it, it creates an ai there's and a black mirror episode <laughs> yeah, that is very that. Cra- it's like, like that. black mirror it's crazy yeah and it's, it's real i i heard about it uh today explained the podcast that vox does um they did a whole like special about it about this man who's been talking with his dead wife his dead fiance because he's just and and that's kind of creepy dude like- it, it's a little freaky and i don't know if it's good it feels like it's just it's emotional porn almost like it's
1: it's, it's and it's, it's a way to not deal with grief yeah but why should not you deal with grief if you don't have to that's true
0: i guess you know you we're, we're looking at this from a very 2022 lens of like it or in our world lens where like where the emotions that humans deal with are natural and they're part of being a human and if we get to a point where those emotions are cured like a disease then that's true it's, it's a different it's like is it bad at that point point? and it gets into the question of like whether good and bad are relative and i believe that they are that there's no such thing as good or bad that it is all in the eye of the beholder so
1: yeah that makes a lot of sense i think if it's your fiance you should move on so then you can find a new fiance, and that's like,
0: the yeah, that's the question like how much by taking this small bit of happiness, how much happiness are you sacrificing?
1: Yeah. but what if it's my grandmother, yeah. you know like my grandma passed away last year, yeah, and every now and then like i I yeah. hear her phrases and like right. or I'm cooking something or mm-hmm. I eat something that reminds me of her, like yeah. what if I could? Shab with her, that would be yeah. pretty cool. She hated phones and technology and all that, so. So that'd be know. a little it'd be difficult. <laughs> but it would be really cool, and I think we're probably gonna get to that point. Maybe in the world of after death, we need to have something like that.
0: Something like that, we're, except like no one dies, so you don't have loved ones that you're.
1: But they would have their loved ones. I guess yeah, like people like,
0: yeah. I guess you're right because they would. Yeah, that's true. Season two. Save yeah, this season is so. season two feature. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's it's very interesting how we have all of these things that no matter how much technology we create, there is still a big piece of being humans that we completely don't understand. And Mm -hmm. I think that's where I have been in the last few years. You know, I I grew up as a Christian evangelical in the church. Mm -hmm. Like, my life was completely based on on that belief. And then all of that changed. And now I'm left with not this belief Hmm. it just i understand things better Hmm. to the point where you can understand okay this explanation it's just not it it cannot hold everything that we now know right and i think once you see that you cannot unsee it yeah but i still have so much wonder and awe, and i have no idea what we really are or where are we really supposed to go Mm -hmm. or anything like that that's a very interesting uh topic that i think so many movies have touched on yeah. you have the matrix which is one of my favorite movies yeah. of all times and even the new matrix have you have you seen the new yeah. one yeah i want to know I, we can do that take this offline but what no, do you no, think no, of the matrix it. like uh i liked it you did yeah i did like it. i wasn't going in expecting a whole lot <laughs> mm-hmm. so for me if i wanted to like it mm-hmm. and then when i watched it i was like this is actually really interesting yeah. So what they did is they took everything that happened before and they just said okay that happened but now we're going to give you a new alternative version mm-hmm. where you think that happened but it was not really happening and it was like some layers deep into this fake life that the that neo was living and then you have the fact that most people want to stay in that loop or this like predetermined hmm. reality yeah, so they can feel secure and they don't want to know that there's other things outside of that. Yeah. And it, it sounds simple and kind of cliche, but I'm pretty sure you can think about a few people in, that you know that they actually rather live yeah. within these parameters of thinking that this is safer, or there's nothing you can do about X, Y, and yeah. Z, or this is my situation, this is the only mm-hmm. thing that I can do, or like these people are evil and they want to control me, or yeah, I think. It's
0: fascinating, like I heard this story about, um, this, this study they did about menus, that uh, about, about the, when you look at like a restaurant menu, you should have three or f- three to five choices. If you have less, people will feel like they don't have a choice and they're being forced to eat what they want. But if you give them more than three or five choices, they will get overwhelmed and they won't, they won't enjoy the eating at the restaurant because they won't, they'll feel like they're missing too much. And people actually don't want free will. In most cases, people want some level of free will, they don't want to be, compl- they don't want to be faced with the fact that they don't want free will. They don't want to be given the one choice in on the menu. But they want to feel like they have free will and they're choosing between three to five predetermined things. They yeah. don't want to have an infinite number of possibilities of things they yeah. can choose.
1: That's hilarious. The first time ever I went to a subway, <laughs> they asked me, what type of bread do you want? Yeah. And I was like, I, I was not shocked for like 10 <laughs> seconds. I was like, what do you mean? Yeah. Like, what do you mean, what type of bread? Because I come from Cuba. Because Cuba, where, yeah. You just yeah. have the one bread. Like, yeah. It's bread.
0: Because it's a yeah, communist country, yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. And there's a story about, uh, is it Gorbachev or some like, one of the communist leaders. And he came to America for like some summit. And on the way back, he's like, I want to see America. I want to see a little bit. So he, they went. The, his driver brought him to a grocery store. And he went into the grocery store and he got super depressed. He's like, oh, this the USSR is over. Like, because there's like 15 different types of like, breakfast cereal and he was like well who decides how much to buy of each and and what flavors and The, the store clerk was like well oh, the people decide like the people want and it's just it's crazy. It's insane. That's yeah. it's bizarre it's, It doesn't really have anything to do with the the uh, freedom of choice, but it is it's very interesting.
1: Yeah, so what did you think about the matrix? I
0: Had fun at it. I did not think now here's some blasphemy for the impact theory community I think the Matrix, the original Matrix, it's a fine action movie. I am not in love with that movie at all. The first um, one? The first one, yeah. Okay. I think it's, I understand, like, there's a lot of movies that, like, I understand I should appreciate them. And I, sh- I do appreciate them because they created
1: all of these things. So that, you're 23. Mm-hmm. So when the Matrix first Matrix came out. I how? was. It came out in, what,
0: 1998,
1: 1999?
0: Mm-hmm, 99. 99, so I'd be one. You'll be, you were one to so not see it. Yeah, that's, that's why.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's why and I think it's, it's it doesn't this, have yeah. that weight for you. Yeah. Because by the time you watched it, you watched it when you were like 15.
0: Yeah. And I'd seen so many things that were copying it that those were my originals. Yes. And then like the matrix was this like, well, it's just it's less of that. It's an old, it's an old, yeah, it's movie, old yeah. movie. So yes, I don't, I don't see what a lot of people in the impact theory community see in the matrix.
1: Um, not, and by yeah. the way, not in the impact theory community. In general, in, in the, the f- world. In the yeah. world and like in film lovers everywhere. I think it's the think same it's a very happens good movie to me. I'll watch it. I never will not want to watch it again. Yeah, but I could never expect that you're gonna love that movie the mm-hmm. same way that I love that movie because yeah. when I watched it, it was like. Right. So when The Matrix came out, I was like 10. So imagine yeah. if, you, if you're a 10 year old kid mm-hmm. and you have never seen like Bullet Time yeah. or like all the fight sequences. Yeah. Like when I watched that, it was like unbelievable. And then you watch it like three years later and then you start trying to pay attention to the philosophy Mm -hmm. and it's amazing. And then you watch it again when you're 19 Mm -hmm. and it's like, for me, it's really interesting because The Matrix, when I first got to like really sit down to analyze it, I was Christian. Hmm. So to me, it was like this movie is like an allegory to jesus as Hmm. a savior yeah so i saw it with those lenses yeah and it was as everyone Hmm. needs to be saved so everyone needs like the word of god yeah and you have the chosen one who is jesus christ and it was the perfect messiah yeah uh and i was looking it through that lens yeah and then i watched it again after I came to America, mm-hmm. and then I start changing my my beliefs, I watch it again, and it's like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Right. It's the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of, like, him You had to break being, out of this. Yeah. Yes. It's like religion is where, where people are kind of asleep, and mm-hmm. they believe all of this uh, dogma. Yeah. And then someone is going to break out of that, hmm. and you take Neo... Once you, come, once you come into America and you get the more Western version of, like, the self and identity, then you see yourself as Neo. Huh. Then to me, it was oh, like... Oh,
0: it's like you're in Zion. You're, like, coming out and you're in the, Nebuchadnezz- yes. you're in the Nebuchadnezzar now that you're in America.
1: Yeah. Huh. And it's like, first, I would, I, when I watched the movie, mm-hmm. it was like Neo was Jesus Christ. Yeah. Then I watched it again and, it, no, no, no. I am Neo. You're Neo. I'm coming out of the matrix and I can have the power yeah. to see the reality. Yeah. And then you watch it again years later and you can take it as, wait, capitalism or society or whatever mm-hmm. could be that matrix facade thing. Mm-hmm. And now you have to break out of not just being an individual, now you have to break out of your own preconceived notions of who you're supposed hmm. to be. Yeah. So it's like three levels deep. Yeah. So like see how that that journey is completely different. Yeah. Probably when you watched oh, it. Oh, of course. Yeah. I it was an action movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like it's so an action movie. <laughs> it's completely yeah. different. So I really hmm. love it and, and I'm happy that I have that film. Hmm. You another movie that we disagree is <laughs> uh Your Beloved Dune. Dune. Oh, you, you didn't no. like Dune, right, yeah. I did not like it the huh. same way
0: that you did. I, I liked the movie a lot. I don't think I've ever had a reaction to a movie as strong as your reaction to The Matrix, though. I don't think, I, there's no movie I could talk about, it's like sit here and talk about like how deeply and profoundly it affected me and my journey as a human being, as you are talking about there, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I did like Dune.
1: <laughs> yeah, my thing with Dune is, it, it was like 30 to 40 minutes uh-huh. too long. Mm. I just think they need to completely. cut some out of it. Uh, I love uh, the the lead actor Chalamet. So yeah,
0: Chalamet. That's yeah. how
1: you say his name. I think he was awesome. I really yeah. liked him. Uh, I love Sandhya, but I think <laughs> well, it, all two seconds of her. <laughs> and I think they just repeated the same shots I over and yeah, over. In yeah. From the beginning of the movie, they already told me that that was going to happen. So it felt like it was never right. a surprise or anything. Yeah. So I, I was kind of sad that I didn't enjoy that as much. Mm. Jason Momoa, I thought that they were going to use him more in the movie. And then it was mm-hmm. like very short and he died so yeah. quickly. So I did not like it. Yeah. No, I,
0: I, I understand all of those. I think there's something... So for me... You said The Matrix is this like profound, like, cause you saw it when you were 10. The movies I saw when I was 10 were like Harry Potter, like the, latest, the later Harry, love, Potter and, uh, Harry Potter movies, and like The Hunger Games, those were kind of the foundational texts of film for me, yeah, which that, is maybe why I don't have this oh deep, profound reaction to them.
1: He just said that The Hunger <laughs> Games is the foundation film text of his life. <laughs> Harry Potter more. But yeah, oh maybe why I'm not so ha- deep about say it. Say Harry Potter, don't ever say The Hunger Games again anymore. The Hunger Games is a good movie. The Hunger Games is a very overrated movie.
0: The why so the the kind of YA movies like they they're they're all the same. They're very like yeah. plot. They're very predictable. They're very, they're they're shot the same way, they're scored the same way, they're acted the same way. I thought The Hunger Games it tried things differently. I think they're the movie if you look at it and you, especially if you look at the first one and then you watch the the subsequent ones yeah. they're 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 very different in their style and aesthetic um, the first one i think gary ross
1: was a director i don't know someone
0: yeah. someone ross
1: you watch and... the, the the only thing i love about the hunger games is jennifer lawrence like mm. i love yeah. jennifer lawrence <laughs> i think she's amazing She's gorgeous yeah. she's an amazing <laughs> actress but it comes down again to the timing, I think. Mm-hmm. When did you watch the Hunger games? That was About like 13. 2012. That was probably
0: 13, 14, something like
1: that. Yeah. When yeah. I watched it, I was like... I first no, and you're right, I, I don't think The Hunger
0: Games is an amazing film, yeah. by any stretch of it. For me, it was like it was like a midnight showing I got to go see with my dad, you know, it was like oh. so I got to stay up late, you know, I got to like do all this stuff. It 13 was like, year old Sam you know.
1: going to the movies <laughs> at 12.
0: I was super excited That's by that. Hilarious. Back when they still did midnight
1: showings, I'm very sad they don't do those anymore, those That's were amazing. That's funny. Um, One good thing about communist countries, like we would watch movies at any time. Yeah. I remember watching the set Seven Deadly Sins when I was like six or seven. Mm. Yeah. Which is, if you don't know, it's a very like hardcore David Fincher, yeah. like serial killer movie yeah. with like not. Oh, you're mo- saying seven, right? Yeah. It's seven. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. yeah. yeah. Uh, they I was like, I don't movie. know
0: this David Fincher movie. Seven Deadly Sins. And then I was like, yeah, well, it's, it's that, that was makes the, sense. Yeah, yeah. like the Spanish yeah, yeah, yeah. name that <laughs> oh, they it gave called, it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So
1: <laughs> they. Uh, if you call a movie seven yeah. in Cuba, people will be like, well, I mean, "What? Why?" About? <laughs> so I remember watching that movie and having nightmares for yeah. a very long time because I was seven years old. Yeah, when I watched that. Yeah, so, I can imagine. It's <laughs> yeah. a scarring movie. Yeah, that's incredible. Like the the way movies can, like I can almost see my life by the movies that I watch. and yeah. when I watch them, huh. and I can go back and like one of my favorite of all times, Terminator Two. That's a great movie. Amazing movie. But probably when you watched that it was like already like an No, Terminator is so crap.
0: No, there's there's a couple of movies. I think for me the ones that really like, stood out to me are the ones that like my parents would like my, my I would get to stay It was usually my experiences of like I would get either to go to like a midnight showing or I get to like stay up late on like a school night and go see them with my parents, you know, or watch them at home. So like the ones like the kind of 80s 80s-ish movies that kind of really stuck out. I think Terminator 2 was 90s, but yeah. um uh, or T2 and Aliens those, those are the two that I still like respond to in ways that I don't respond to the other ones um, to me they're still they're still not like Harry Potter was my shit that was like the thing I got really excited about
1: I had no idea you like Harry <laughs> Potter I love Harry Potter if you can look over there I know like, I know you got your uh,
0: you got your literary yeah, ink. yeah. that's
1: my my featured dog literary <laughs> ink is basically like Tattoos about mm-hmm. Harry Potter, right? Yeah, so I love Harry Potter. I just watched the like the reunion thing Oh, yeah, I haven't HBO. seen that one. Yeah, yeah You're, you're you need to watch <laughs> it You're gonna love it because they go back and they show like everything for me if, I mean you make a Harry Potter movie and that's it you can like okay. I can say bye like I I, <laughs> I, I think those movies are incredibly fantastic Beasts seven No, fantastic bees. <laughs> I cannot stand so it. so you got to just reboot the franchise. That's what you're saying No uh, I think it's interesting. We're getting to the point where the impact of a film is hugely correlated to the timing in your life where you watch it. Mm-hmm. So if you're watching a movie that is really well made and you watch it in your like teenage years, mm-hmm. I think it will create an impression in your life like nothing else.
0: Yeah. So it's maybe- kind of like music. Like the music that you listened to when you were 12 or like 15 is yeah. the best music in the world. It doesn't yeah. matter – If the music you listen to, like the music I listened to, was shit when I was 12 to 15. But now I just love shit music. And that's just like the best music in the world to me is like Katy Perry. And that's because like that's what closeted Sam was listening to at 13 years old.
1: That's hilarious. But you're absolutely right. And when I was 13, I was listening to Christian reggaeton. Yeah, Christian reggaeton. That's still the best music. Can you imagine? And I would still play one of those tracks and I have like... Two or, my, two or three of my best friends yeah. that we grew up together in that time. That's the shit. Like, we played that, and it's, like, yeah. best music ever. So that's <laughs> hilarious that you were listening to Katy, Katy Perry. So oh, yeah. now that you say Closet Sam at 13, uh-huh. tell me a little bit about that whole thing of, like, if you want to get into it. Sure. But like, coming out? Coming mm-hmm. out, and then how that works in mixed with your career and with personal life. Because... That's something, and to be honest, like, I don't know much. (laughs) You didn't know I was gay until, like, two months ago. No, no, more than that, that. more than that. It felt like two months ago, but, like, it was, we were working
0: on the the pitch deck, and Mm -hmm. you were like, what kind of girls are you into? I'm like, not girls.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah, for me, it's like, Sam it's just a person, so. Yeah,
0: no, I, yeah, I get that. I don't, I don't come off, I don't have, like, a stereotypically, like, Mm -hmm. any gay kind of stereotypical, um, kind of. Mannerisms, um, yeah. I mean, I don't think my parents were super. My, my mom was desperate for gay kids. Like, if if, if nurture had wait, anything, wait to wait do, wait, that like she wanted us. I am being why? facetious a little bit. Oh, I don't know. She want like she just wanted like she like she. That's. I thought you were I'm gonna say sure your why. mom was devastated. No no no. She was. She would have loved it if we were all gay. Um. So wow. me, she got two. She out of five, she got two. So that's good. She got two gay kids. Um. But, so. Yeah, so I wasn't like, I definitely had like a very supportive family. The only like, I've had, to, I had an awkward conversation with my grandfather because he believes that gay, because he's a priest, Catholic priest, or a Presbyterian priest or something. Mm-hmm. And he believes that, you know, being gay is against the Bible or something. So that was an awkward conversation. But I didn't have any like negative like conversations. I was very, kind of my thing growing up was I was very afraid that, um, like I, I kind of knew I was gay from the beginning. Like I didn't. I, there was, there was maybe like six months after I started, like you know, figuring my stuff out, that I was like, maybe I'm straight. And then I was like, oh no, no, no. I keep fantasizing about guys. I'm not straight. Um, and I think what was difficult for me was I was very worried. My thing about coming out was that like all of my straight friends were going to think I was into them, um, and that they wouldn't want to hang out with me because of that. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of a big kind of hurdle for me and then I also like I dated girls in high school even though I kind of knew I was gay um, and I didn't want to like so I came out as bi first so at the end of high school when I was like in senior in high school I kind came out to my friends came out to my parents didn't come out to public and uh, that I came out as bi because I didn't want to kind of like re- I was very worried about like I was very image obsessed and like didn't want to come off as like oh I've never dated anyone you know so like I dated girls and I wanted those to still count was the stupidest thing ever. And that's something you don't realize in high school is stupid. But yeah. once you get out of high school, you're like, that's so fucking dumb. And then, so I came out as like bi. And then in college, uh, I, that was the first time I was like out to everyone. I just like, you know, when I went to Ireland, I was like, didn't know anyone, so I just came out to everyone. And about six months into that, I was like, oh, why am I pretending to be bi? <laughs> I'm just so I just like, told my friends like, yeah, I'm gay. I was very I'm very lucky because I don't present as gay and my family was all very supportive. Um, so I, I can't speak to people who, who don't have that situation um, and how that coming out experience will be. But for me, I know that it was when I just, the coming out was the worst part. And actually not even coming out, the pre coming out. like. Everyone responded. the The thing I found when I told people is they just didn't care. (laughs) It was like they really like. Maybe they were like. Maybe my parents. I'm sure my parents were putting on airs that they didn't care. They were really trying not to care. But it really seemed like they just did not care. They had no like. My I told my dad and he was like, okay, okay, and like he could tell there's something on my mind. So he asked me what was up and I told him and he was like, okay, yeah, what's up? So what's up? Or whatever. So like, there's like. I was just very surprised that people didn't care. But that's, again, because I had really supportive yeah. parents and don't come off as gay, so yeah. I and don't I know. And I think they care, it's just
1: that they care more about you than right. and to love you. And, yeah.
0: like- and I think at least, I don't know about my, about my dad, I don't think he has a problem with it, but um, my mom is like desperately wants more cake. kids. She, it was made her day, I'm sure, like when I told her, so like, um, but yeah. So yeah, so that's been my experience. And you know, if if someone's struggling with that, you know, you, Uh, It's hard, but even if you do have unsupportive parents, you you will feel better doing it. It, At the end of the day, afterward, uh, it it seemed like it was the biggest thing in the world when I was dealing with it, and after, uh, it feels like nothing. It feels like this little thing in my past. I don't think about being gay, Maybe once a week. <laughs> like, uh, I really don't think about it. I don't think of my relationships as gay relationships. I really don't think like that. So, if you are struggling with it, there is light at the end of the tunnel. It really, you just are a person, You're just a normal person.